0: Copyright Reform and the DMCA, a case study. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing partner of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today, it is my great pleasure to say this is not a Blizzard of Backlash episode. We're not going to discuss China at all, I don't think, or Activision Blizzard or the National Basketball Association instead i'm responding to a tweet that i received from a follower of mine on social media that said hey this could be a good topic to break from blizz china at Hoglaw. seen way too many artists have their works ripped off and printed on t-shirts to be sold on ebay and facebook and this links to a verge article called house overwhelmingly approves contentious new copyright bill that is all about the case act Now, if you're not familiar with this, I did talk a little bit about the Case Act earlier when I was interviewing the authors of Creativity and Copyright, so please do check out that video, and I will put a card up here if I remember to do so, Uh, but we talked about it very, very briefly, so there wasn't an in-depth discussion, and we're going to look at these articles because I think the primary thing I want to discuss with you all on virtual legality is kind of the nature of reading about complicated, especially legal issues, but also complicated business issues or political issues, and how you really do need to triangulate. You really do need to figure out what the various sides' incentives are, what they're trying to achieve with whatever it is they're trying to do, whether that's a business statement, as we've discussed in prior videos in virtual legality, or in this case, with a House of Representatives bill. And so let's talk about that. Let's read this article and let's kind of reflect on who's saying what and why and what the potential problems with this act might be. But in the greater context of, hey, for the most part, people, even legislators, even folks that think about this a lot, put together laws after a great deal of negotiation and discussion, we don't actually know what the long run effects of major structural changes to things like the legal system will be. So we can only reflect on what we know right now, which is, as we've talked about in virtual legality, as we've talked about in Help Us Out Hogan with the Easy Allies, is that litigation is a very, very expensive undertaking. And that in respect of intellectual property and the internet and copyright and trademarks, it's not really one that is built to advantage uh, the little guy, the guy that can't afford to defend themselves in court. So when we talk about things like fair use, and defenses for use of intellectual property that's part of this conversation that yes fair use is a defense you can use another's intellectual property for transformative generally non-commercial purposes and that will be a defense to an intellectual property infringement claim but As a defense, generally speaking, you have to go through the court system. They have to actually bring that infringement claim against you. And if it's a close question, you have to decide whether you're going to pay lawyers or you're just going to take the thing down and and try to go away. That's how cease and desist letters really work on the internet for the most part nowadays. And the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the DMCA, which is one of the things that I reference in the title of this video, is part and parcel to the discussions that people are having about all of this because the DMCA provides certain rules that we're going to talk about later in this video that, while well-meaning, are pretty easy to abuse, especially if you've got an entire firm of lawyers ready to just jump on anybody that tries to defend themselves from these various things. So in that context, we look at copyright reform and we look at the issues that this is trying to address and we say, okay, is it going to address those issues? And if it does, what are generously the unintended consequences of that act and for the most part i hold a pretty strong philosophy that if you can foresee consequences they aren't necessarily unintended for what you're putting together in in legislation or otherwise however giving the benefit of the doubt to these folks what are the potential bad things that can happen what is that abuse that can happen with what we're about to talk about. So let's read this article. And again, it's called House Overwhelmingly Approves Contentious New Copyright Bill, which means it's not law yet. It's got a ways to go, but it's worth talking about because it has this bipartisan support. On Tuesday, the House of Representatives, the US House of Representatives, overwhelmingly voted to approve a measure that would shake up the Copyright Office if it were made into law, creating a small claims court where online content creators can go after their infringers. The Copyright Alternative in Small Claims Enforcement Act, or the CASE Act for short. We got to pause there. So this bothers me on a kind of just generalized grammatical level. That is not an acronym for CASE. Small claims, you can't just take the claims part out. You can't just make it a hyphenated one word and say C-A-S-E and call it an acronym. Small claims is not generally done that way. And so I think that they are violating the spirit of Washingtonian uh, acronyms. But we're going to let that slide because case sounds better than whatever you might pronounce it with the C involved. So this was approved by a 410 to 6 vote. Representative Hakeem Jeffries, Democrat from New York, introduced the measure last year with the goal of giving graphic artists, photographers, and other content creators a more efficient pathway towards receiving damages if their works are infringed. Under current law, all copyright suits must go through the federal courts, a system that is often costly and time-consuming for creators who decide to litigate their cases. So that's the premise of this act. And again, we're going to take a step back because as a practicing lawyer, there are a couple of things that I note here. There have been a lot of movements in the last, let's say, couple of decades to move generalized things, disputes away from litigation. Everybody understands that litigation is a huge cost, takes a lot of time. Everybody's generally unhappy when it's all over. And so there have been these movements to encourage at the state level, usually, arbitration, although there is a federal arbitration act, and mediation, which we call in the legal profession, alternative dispute mechanisms. And those are basically saying, we don't need to go to court. We think we can do it faster. We think we can do it less costly if we go through arbitration or if we have a mediator first or if we have, in some contracts I've seen, paragraphs that say, We're gonna talk about this in good faith for 60 days or something. So that if you're really bothered, we at least have a chance to cool down and maybe we can come up with something where we don't involve lawyers at all. Uh, And obviously as a lawyer myself, I like billing time. I like getting that money, feeding my family, but I never want to give a, a bill to you that you don't think you got value from. And I think litigation often feels that way for clients. So there's been a lot of movement towards, let's streamline this whole thing. And in general, I'll state my position here. I'm in favor of that. I'm in favor of trying to reduce those costs, reduce that friction, get more justice under the law. And I think there are a lot of mechanisms in the current structure that prevent that justice. And that often lines the pockets of litigators and other lawyers, but oftentimes is just a function of so many cases and only so many judges or juries or whatever it is that you're looking at. So in general, when I see, okay, we want to make a small claims court, I like that concept, but others have problems with it. So let's continue reading this article. With the Case Act, Congress is hoping to streamline the process for both parties. If the measure were to become law, the Copyright Office would house a tribunal of copyright claims officers who would work with both parties involved in a lawsuit to resolve infringement claims. As outlined in the bill, damages would be capped at $15,000 for each infringed work and top out at $30,000 total. So not small claims, small claims like you generally think of it. A lot of states have small claims courts that maybe go up to five or 10000 So this is a little bit higher than that, but it's obviously not a million dollar lawsuit. It's not $500,000 or anything like that. So the hope would be that it's maybe not worth the time of some bigger companies to go and use this process for these small amounts. That may or may not be the case in practicality. Continuing with some quotes here from Representative Jeffries, The internet has provided many benefits to society. It is a wonderful thing, but it cannot be allowed to function as if it is the Wild West with absolutely no rules. Jeffries told The Verge in an interview back in September, We have seen that there are bad actors throughout society and the world who take advantage of the internet as a platform in a variety of ways. We cannot allow it. Now, the world is perhaps, you know, it's, it's, politicians grandstanding. There's only so much that United States law can do about intellectual property protection and generally just acknowledgement of intellectual property in other jurisdictions. I promised you I wouldn't talk about China in this video, but I have violated that promise because In China, there has long been a kind of discussion with United States manufacturers and various companies about whether or not that society and that legal system actually values intellectual property and is willing to protect it in the manner that it's necessary uh, for these companies to feel like they are getting their intellectual property uh, value. Uh, And so... Uh, China, other jurisdictions, they don't necessarily have to abide by American copyright law or trademark law or patent law or anything like that. Those are American jurisdictional laws. And so, yes, they can make these changes, but we're not actually talking about hurting everybody in the world with these things. They're talking about hopefully getting at bad actors within the United States primarily where they have jurisdictional authority. Continuing with the article, the internet has made it easy for potential infringers to copy and paste creative works from artists, especially those whose businesses exist primarily online. However, internet advocacy and civil rights groups like the Electronic Frontier Foundation and the American Civil Liberties Union have warned that a system like the one proposed by the Case Act could cost the average internet user thousands for simply sharing a meme or lead to encroachments on their First Amendment rights. Now here we get to the part of the article where you say, okay, you've presented the case at the top. Now you're presenting the counterargument, but how legitimate is that counterargument? This is essentially some fear-mongering, and it doesn't mean it's not true fear-mongering. We're gonna talk about that. But they say, hey, if you share a meme which I actually don't know anybody that's online for any length of time, whether it's in uh, Reset Era or NeoGAF or Twitter or Facebook. I don't know anybody who hasn't shared a meme or other material which could be considered copyright. Let's, you know, let's consider an article. If you share an article or if you share an image of an article, In some respects, that's copyrighted. And so if you share that, are you infringing? Now, for the most part, no, you're not selling it. You're not commercializing it. You're getting out a message in respect of an article. That is what the authors of the article and what whoever published it want to get out there. Uh, It is why a lot of the times you can say, hey, please don't send an image, send a link. Let's get those clicks. That's how that business runs. And I think if you want to honor the Internet system, I think that's useful to do. You know, we link all of the source material and all the things we discuss in the description to this video. But hey, we're now talking about the newsworthiness of an article written by another person, by another company, The Verge. And we're making this video to talk about it, to editorialize about it, to hopefully educate about it. But yes, this is a kind of derivative work off of what this article, what this author have put together. And I believe it's fair use because it's transformative, it's in a video, you're getting my commentary and all these various things. But if they wanted to sue me for using this, that's something that they could potentially do. And I would have to defend myself on that fair use basis. And so I think the premise of this argument is if you make it easier for folks like The Verge or anybody else that makes a meme potentially to go and bring a claim against another party, that becomes less friction for them and going making trouble for someone else. And if you have that limited amount of friction, maybe we get a lot of abuse. Maybe we get a lot of situations where these companies or even a potential meme troll that doesn't exist right now in modern society could exist and, say, potentially take up the copyrights of a bunch of popular memes and then go and bring small claims against anybody that transmits those memes. Now, I don't think that's a very likely situation. And I think memes in general and various other ways that we use the Internet are likely fair use and likely protected uh, as kind of de minimis infringements, if anything. However, you see these kinds of groups get out there and say, we're not so sure about this small claim situation. And and we have some quotes now in this article. Any system to enable easier enforcement of copyrights runs the risk of creating a chilling effect with respect to speech online. The ACLU wrote in a letter to lawmakers on Monday urging them to oppose the measure. Now that's quite a sentiment, right? Copyrights, whether you like them or you hate them, are constitutional. They're directly referenced in the constitution and they are enshrined in federal law. To suggest that any system to enable easier enforcement of what is an actual legal obligation runs the risk of doing all these bad things is a very interesting position for an organization ostensibly situated around protecting civil liberties copyright patents intellectual property is not a civil liberties issue. They're actually talking about very political issues. And I have no problem arguing or discussing the nature of copyrights, whether or not they are for far too long. I think I think if you ask me, I would agree that they are. But whether or not you agree with what is currently enshrined in law, it's very rare for a, an, an organization like the ACLU to come out and say, enforcing these laws, making it easier to enforce these laws is going to create a problem. And in my, in my opinion, as a lawyer, I say, OK, I understand what you're saying. I understand that you think it's potential for abuse. However, the right way to go and to lobby for this and to say it's a problem is to say the law needs to be changed. I don't think anybody can actually hold the position that, OK, if the law is on the books in this way, helping it to be enforced is a bad thing because ultimately we want the laws as written to be enforced to the maximal extent so that if there is a problem there, we can see it, the Congress can react to it and they can change the underlying laws if they are being abused, if there is a problem with how they're being enforced. We don't want the legal system, the laws to be somehow quasi enforced and really be at the discretion of the enforcers, the, the judges or even the prosecutors who are bringing claims at a federal crime level, just solely based on how much time they have or how much the lawyers would cost to enforce something. We don't want those kind of deadweight costs in the economy to turn what is the law into something that is not the law. And so while I am sympathetic to the ACLU sitting here and saying we think that this reduction in friction could lead to more abuse, I don't think you ever want to go out there with a statement like, if it's easier to enforce the existing laws, it's a bad thing. That has to be on its own, separate from what the law is, a good thing, and then we can talk about what the substance of that law is. If you want to change the Copyright Act, let's go do it. Let's talk about the length. Let's talk about whether the DMCA does what it's supposed to. Let's talk about how it can be abused, but let's not talk about, oh, let's use the completely overwhelmed court system and the cost of litigators to make sure this law isn't properly enforced just solely based on the logistics of the economy continuing with their quotes in the article many of these cases will be legitimate however some will not and others even if brought in good faith may be defensible as fair use or for some other permissible reason and indeed right now that's the case Right now, if you get sued and you have a fair use defense, you have to go through the entire costly litigation process. In an ideal world, the Case Act would say you don't. The Case Act would say, let's go into this lower cost process. And if I have a fair use claim, if we're using something that is closer to arbitration, then maybe we can get it done faster. And I can defend myself faster. And I have $2,000 in legal bills instead of $20,000. And then we've reduced... Abuse. And I think that's what the proponents of the bill would say in response to these kinds of things. But it's worth the conversation. Every time you have these kinds of uh, issues pop up, these legislative issues, it's worth having the conversation. I tend to disregard most of what the EFF and the ACLU are saying in this particular case because I think overall it's worthwhile pursuing a small claims kind of arrangement for what amounts to a lot of potential infringement on the internet a lot of folks get stuff stolen all the time And there should be a way to do that in a manner that maybe has some legal support, but doesn't cost you an arm and a leg to defend what is a legitimate complaint that you could have against another party. That goes for big companies, but it also goes for individuals. If you make a really cool piece of art on DeviantArt, and presuming you didn't take the intellectual property from another source, as some do on that particular uh, internet site, then if somebody takes that and puts it to a screen printer and makes t-shirts out of it, then I think you should be able to have some kind of streamlined mechanism to go after it. And just the fact that something can be abused doesn't mean you shouldn't try to improve the system. Uh, I have a lot of issues with the DMCA. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But the fact that it exists is not the only bad thing, right? The fact that it exists is actually a pretty good thing. We want people, we want these internet providers to not immediately have to worry about infringement on every single thing that they take on or every single thing that they publish through their sites. So we don't want that. Then naturally, there are going to be bad actors. There are going to be people that abused it. But in my opinion, there's ways to write around that. And to the extent the ACLU says, "Hey, this could be written better, I agree with them. Uh, I looked at the actual text of the act here, and we're going to look at that in just a second. Uh, But one of the things that I wanted to raise here is that they do tie this to the DMCA. This is an article in The Verge from earlier this year by the same author, I believe, Makina Kelly, that says a new copyright proposal would protect designers online, but at what cost? And one of the things that pops up here, and they summarize the basics here, uh, is a quote from the EFF that ties this to the DMCA, which is the the last bit of this video that I want to talk to you about. That says, Catherine Trendacosta, manager of policy and activism at EFF, suggested that the case act would be similar to the DMCA's takedown provision, creating a wave of specious copyright claims, specious meaning without merit, that are hard to resist or appeal. DMCA is really easy to abuse on all sides, Trendacosta said. When people get these takedowns, they don't know what to do, and you have a lot of people who really shouldn't need to be legal experts having to learn law really fast to try to defend themselves. And in virtual legality, if you follow this channel, if you follow this series, you know we've talked about the DMCA at some length, in particular earlier this year, There was a DMCA takedown fight uh, between Stardock, the makers of the new Star Control Origins games, and Toys for Bob, or more particularly the founders of Toys for Bob, who made the original Star Control games and were fighting over DMCA takedowns and whether or not they had legitimate copyright claims in the existence of a current lawsuit and whether or not you could counter these things, what an indemnification letter looks like, all this good stuff. Check out those videos. They're from about January on of this year. I will link them if I remember to do so or add a card if I remember to do so. But overall, the DMCA is absolutely 100% subject to abuse by bad actors. There's no question about that. And so, just to talk about that briefly, I wanted to talk about there's a picture of Bill Clinton for you. Uh, I wanted to talk about what it actually does. So, I pulled up the Wikipedia. My videos are better uh, than this, not to toot my own horn, but I wanted to just bring this up in summary really quickly. The Digital Millennium Copyright Act has a number of titles, but what we are concerned with is Title II, and Wikipedia describes it like this, DMCA Title II, the Online Copyright Infringement Liability Limitation Act, Ocilla which sounds like a paramecium or something along those lines, creates a safe harbor for online service providers against copyright infringement liability. So think of uh, Facebook, or think of Steam, or uh, Epic Games Store, uh, or Voodoo, or something along those lines, provided they meet specific requirements. OSPs must adhere to and qualify for certain prescribed safe harbor guidelines and promptly block access to alleged infringing material when they receive notification of an infringement claim from a copyright holder or the copyright holder's agent. That's the DMCA takedown notice that you've probably heard of in the news, right? So what this says is if we didn't have this act, and you are Steam, you're Valve, you're running Steam, somebody steals all the game code from a different country, makes it their own asset, and puts it up on Steam. Then without Steam's knowing, they are now contributorily infringing on the original author's intellectual property right and steam doesn't want that and the united states has decided that they don't want that for service providers in this particular area because we want them to be able to maximally put up stuff not worry about it and not be liable for these things because if they were liable that high level of liability would require all of these additional mechanisms you'd have a lot less stuff on the internet and overall we think this safe harbor is useful to them and so if they receive a takedown notice from the original owner then steam or whomever can elect to say, okay, we've received that notice. We now have official written notice that this is infringing. If we take it down right now, then nobody can claim us as liable for the infringement. But it's their option. And that's what's the good part about the law. Steam can say, hey, no, we don't think so. We think that's a silly infringement claim. And we're going to keep it up. Come sue us. Or in the alternative, if they do take it down, ordinarily, they could potentially have liability for a contract breach or for damages to the party that allegedly didn't infringe, the one that put it up on Steam. So this particular title also says, Oscilla also includes a counter-notification provision that offers OSPs a safe harbor from liability to their users when users claim that the material in question is not, in fact, infringing. So they are not liable for just taking it down because they're following the DMCA. However, if then that party that put it up originally gives them a counter-notification, says, no, we're good, they can put it back up and not have that same kind of liability either way. So it's one of those areas where it makes a lot of sense when we just describe what it does. However, what we have seen in action is because of the cost of copyright claims, because of the importance of not getting strikes and other bad things happen to you on the YouTubes of the world, you see people that are smaller, that don't have lawyers, that don't have a legal background, that don't have the money the chips at the table, as I usually say, to fight a Disney or whomever that has all this money and all these lawyers on a takedown notice, you see them receiving these takedown notices for no real good reason, right? I've talked about this video and how it's transformative and how we're bringing all these articles together and we're making an editorial commentary. However, if any one of these parties wanted to issue a takedown notice, YouTube would generally act automatically to take it down and I could dispute that. But if I disputed it and then they they counter disputed it, then it would be gone forever unless I decided to sue them in federal court. And if I don't sue them, then in general, YouTube's going to be safe to say, hey, we're not messing with any of this. We don't want to get into this fight, hoaglaw. Law. So we're going to get out of this. That's what the DMCA says. And it encourages these third parties, some of which are trolls, some of which buy up this intellectual property just to do takedown notices. A lot of this happens in the music industry with those publishers. You can see articles about that. And you get this abuse and you get these situations where the DMCA is being used wrongfully. To me, I look at that and say, that's not a recipe for saying the DMCA is wrong and this is a bad idea. I think overall it's a great idea. What I do see it as is an area of the law where we haven't properly penalized abusive behavior, that there should be high levels of liability. If you lose one of these cases, you should be really burned. You should be really in trouble if you abuse the system. And I'm not seeing that happen right now enough. And that's where I would look to have these things corrected. So I think the Case Act, when we talk about copyright reform, is a good idea. I think small claims courts are a good idea. I think business courts for corporations that want to talk about contracts and not go through the whole rigmarole. We saw those added to Michigan recently. They have business courts in Delaware and other places in the United States. I think those are good ideas. I think specialized knowledge focused on particularized issues are good ideas for reducing cost and reducing the time it takes to actually solve these disputes, but they are subject to abuse. And I looked at this bill. I looked at this in total. I decided that I didn't want to do one of my hour-long specials on virtual legality, walking through this whole thing. Basically, it does what it says on the tin. It makes a small claims court. It positions these officers to have certain responsibilities. It basically mirrors a kind of arbitration concept where you're going to have a lighter form of discovery. You're going to have a lighter procedure. But one thing that I did think was probably something where I agree with the EFF and the ACLU is the concept of opt-in and opt-out. So basically, and I bet you're familiar with this if you think about opt-in or opt-out in respect of data and the GDPR or other things that you might see on your terms and conditions online. But basically, the idea behind the case act was it's going to be voluntary. You don't have to do this if you don't want to. But one party can go and say, hey, we want to do a case act. We want to do this kind of smaller range, small claims court version of a copyright infringement claim. And what this law says is, well, I'll read it to you. It says, opt-out procedure. Upon being properly served with a notice and claim, a respondent who chooses to opt out of the proceeding shall have a period of 60 days beginning on the date of service in which to provide written notice of such choice to the Copyright Claims Board, that's the small claims court, in accordance with regulations established by the Register of Copyrights. So some rules about how to give that notice. And this continues on with some legalese, but basically it says, okay, one party it takes two to tango in a litigation, one party can say, hey, we want to use this procedure. And the other party can say, nope, I don't want to use that procedure. If you are really going to sue me over this, I want you to have to pay your lawyers first. I don't want to let you have that friction-free small claims court action. I want you to have to really decide that this is important enough for you to sue me in a real court. But it's an opt-out. It's not an opt-in. So even though the entirety of the philosophy behind this is that it's going to be voluntary, basically this says... If you don't read your mail, if you're traveling for three months, if you just miss it, and I don't know if you guys are like me, but occasionally you miss an email or you miss a piece of paper mail or one or the other, if you like one or the other. And if you miss that and 60 days go by, you're in, you're locked in. You missed your opt-out window and you have to use this procedure. And I think there's a reasonable uh, requirement. There's a reasonable argument that could be made that says, all right, look, if this whole thing is really to be voluntary, and the EFF and the ACLU are crowing about how it's potentially problematic for people, let's make it really voluntary. Let's say it's opt-in. Let's say one party can start this procedure and can notify the other party. And if the other party doesn't also opt-in within 60 days, then this is gone for them. This is foreclosed and everybody has to use the federal court system. And that way we can be sure that both sides have agreed to use this alternative dispute mechanism. And in all honesty, That's more often the case when we talk about something like arbitration or mediation or something that doesn't use the courts, is that both parties have to agree. And the notion of an opt-out here, where you can accidentally get dragged in, even though 60 days is a fairly generous notice window for this, generally speaking, 30 days is what you see for a lot of terms in contracts and the like. Even though 60 days is a fairly reasonable period, you can still get dragged into this system against your will. And if that's what truly these organizations are complaining about, why not just have it be an opt-in? And I don't know the answer to that question. I I would guess that there was concern that everybody wouldn't opt-in, and so the actual system wouldn't get the usefulness out of it that the Congress wants it to have. Or else this just wasn't really considered in this format, although it would surprise me with those quotes out there if this opt-out concept wasn't discussed. But... At the end of the day, that's what I see as the primary problem here. The rest of it, I am all for additional access to justice. I'm all for additional access to courts or court-like flavoring. And so I'm in general in favor of something like the Case Act, even if this bill, as it currently sits, doesn't make it out of the Senate in this format. I think looking at copyright reform, trying to change the laws to better reflect what modern society actually has. We've gone over the Copyright Act a number of times in virtual legality. And every time I start talking about phonographs or or, or audio recordings in various ways, I always laugh because the actual act itself is not written for the year 2019 at all. And so I think any possibility of reform is generally a good thing. And we shouldn't just stop it because someone somewhere might abuse the corrections we're trying to make. That's been Virtual Legality for today. I hope you enjoyed it. We talk about these things all the time. We've been doing a series on China and Activision Blizzard and the NBA, which is now on part seven. We'll undoubtedly have at least one more part when Activision Blizzard has BlizzCon in about eight days. Uh, But otherwise we talk about law and business and economics and information technology software and everything else, as well as pop culture. You can see in the bottom left corner there, we just recently did an impressions video on the latest star Wars trailer. Uh, So check that out. If you're at all interested in star Wars and those kinds of things. Otherwise, if you saw this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. I really appreciate it. Share it around to anybody you think might be interested. And if you listen to it on a podcast, thank you so much for listening. I will catch you